You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Very cool. That was so much fun. Thank you to all of you who were there, especially to all of our team members and volunteers who made last week impossible. It was Super great, and what's also super great is that you're here today, so thank you for being here. Let me just give you, before I get into a standalone message today, let me give you a sneak peek real quick at what's gonna start next week. Next week, for the month of November, we'll be starting a new series called You Might Regret That Later. You might regret that later. We'll be having some fun, a little bit of fun talking about how the gospel empowers us to live better stories with fewer regrets, especially in those big two areas of our finances and relationships. So hope you're looking forward to that. Hope you'll be here for that. And in case that's not enough, next week, you know this is the very first Sunday in November, which means at Mosaic, it's like a holiday. It's like my favorite Sunday of the year. If you hear some folks getting excited about it, good. I'm not gonna tell you why. If you knew, I'm gonna let it be a surprise for you. But if there were one Sunday out of the whole year, I would ask you to be here, I would beg you to be here, I'd plead with you to be here, I might even pay you to be here. It's next Sunday, so I hope you're gonna come and watch or be here online, it's gonna be amazing. Last week, I don't know if you saw this, in the news, Time Magazine published an article with perhaps the best headline I have seen in a long time. It was the best headline because I think it was the right headline describing something that we're all kind of living through right now. And that headline was this. It was called this. There's the title of the article. It was called, Why Everyone is So Rude Right Now. Now, I hope this wasn't your story on the way into the parking lot or on the way out today. If that's the case, we'll try to fix that. But the article started like this. It said, September 2021 was a bad month for manners. On the 21st, a woman pulled a gun on servers at a Philadelphia fast food restaurant when they asked her to order online. On the 16th, several women from Texas pummeled a hostess at a New York City family-style restaurant. A few days prior to that, a Connecticut mother was investigated for slapping an elementary school bus driver. And that same week, a California woman was charged with felony assault for attacking a Southwest Airlines flight attendant and dislodging some of her teeth. And the author went on to describe how people in almost any people business, and some of you know this, this may be you, if you work in the people business, that people are describing right now not just a whole lot of increased rudeness, but what the author goes on to describe as sheer mayhem. Sheer mayhem, like hospitals, healthcare systems are now making people sign contracts before they receive healthcare, just to remind you that you can't act however you want to in the waiting room. In the doctor's office, uh, the restaurant companies are creating these please be kind toolkits to hand out to diners to help you and us remember the same. It goes on and on. What is, what is going on? Because you probably thought, like I thought, like a lot of people thought that when things began to open up, like we'd be real excited to see each other again. It would go well. Like it would be like side hugs all around. Like we would just fist bump each other until the hand sanitizer all, all came off and our, our knuckles got bruised. Unfortunately, that's not exactly how it's gone. What's going on? Well, 
Article goes on to quote Dr. Bernard Golden. He's an author and a psychologist. He specializes in anger and anxiety management. And he puts it like this. During COVID, there's been an increase in anxiety, a reported increase in depression, an increased demand for mental health services, he adds. Lots of people, in other words, are on their very last nerve. And then he summarizes the whole thing with this punchline. Half the people fear COVID, said Golden. Half the people fear being controlled. Now, whether you agree with him or not, I think he is right about one thing. What I think he is right about is what he says is is hiding underneath, lurking underneath all of the the rudeness, all the mayhem. It's It's a singular emotion. I think almost everyone is feeling at some level right now, whether you're liberal, conservative, you're young or old, and that singular emotion is this. It's fear. It's fear. People are afraid. They're anxious and afraid of a lot of stuff. And when we are afraid, we stop thinking. When we stop, we're afraid, we stop asking questions. We just believe anything. And when we're afraid, we stop acting like adults. And when we're afraid, in many cases, we stop acting like humans. We regress. We assault flight attendants and nurses and wait staff at restaurants. We scream at school board meetings and we fire stuff onto the Twitterverse. And when we're afraid and we're anxious, sometimes we don't just forget we're human. Sometimes we don't even want to be human at all anymore. And maybe we even want to end our own lives. We're afraid. It's a nation we're afraid, anxious and afraid. Where is it coming from? Well, let me give you two thoughts. If you've never seen this like this before. Someone named Ed Freeman, he's a Jewish psychologist and rabbi. He died and wrote this 25 years ago, by the way. 25 years ago, he wrote this, and it's, I think, prophetic. He says that anxiety in a culture spikes when two primary things happen. Number one, anxiety, he says, escalates as society is overwhelmed by the quantity and the speed of change. Number two, the institutions or individuals that traditionally absorb or bind off society's anxiety are no longer available to absorb it. Now, does that sound anywhere like 2020 and 2021? Overwhelming rapid change plus things closed, unable, unavailable to absorb fears and concerns. It does sound like that. And here we are. So how can we move forward? How can we move forward? Maybe a better question is, I think, how can we do better? How can we do better? How can we move out of chronic anxiety into emotional health and emotional maturity, no matter the environment? Well, that's what I want to try to take a look at today from one of my favorite passages. It's in the life of Jesus. It's a remarkable passage. We're about to read it. It's Mark chapter 5. And we're going to see from there how Jesus Christ of Nazareth, how he models for us and empowers us to be people who maybe even can see the miraculous happen as we move out of anxious regression into being confident, mature, bold, Christ-centered people, even in environments filled with fear and death. Let's take a look at our text, Mark chapter five. It'll be on the screen in front of you. Here we go. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. 
He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. And at this, they were completely astonished. And he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. And that's God's word from Mark chapter five. And in light of that, let me try to give you now, here we go, three keys to emotional maturity in any environment. Three keys to emotional maturity in any environment. And if you were one of the, those folks who joined us at the men's event, some of this is gonna sound a little familiar. Number one, let me encourage you today. Here's our first key to emotional maturity, to quit embracing chronic reactivity. Quit embracing chronic reactivity. Let's go to our text here. Mark chapter five, maybe you know the backstory to the story. In the few verses leading up to this, we saw how Jesus has just healed a man possessed by demons, it said. All right, no one could help this man, but Jesus could. And after this healing, this exorcism, Jesus sails across the Sea of Galilee. Now on the other side of the lake, waiting for him was someone called a synagogue leader. That's a Jewish religious leader in charge of a local house of worship in that day. He was an important public figure and his name, as we read, was Jairus. And Jairus had a daughter around 12 years old, who's sick and dying, and he hears about Jesus, this, this miracle-working Jewish rabbi whom he believes could help him. So Jairus makes the journey to the edge of the lake and begs Jesus to come to his house and heal his daughter once Jesus steps off that boat. So Jesus agrees, and they begin to walk not run, but walk to this man's house. But on the way there, they are interrupted by someone else. It's this sick woman. She'd been sick and bleeding herself, it says, for around 12 years. And in the middle of a, the crowd, she reaches out and she touches Jesus. It says power goes out from him. Virtue goes out of him. And she is healed. And as a result, as Jesus feels this, he stops he turns around. He calls her out of the crowd. They have a conversation right there. And this whole thing is amazing. But the point is that all the while, the whole time, Jairus, the father, is cringing. He's dying a little inside as he thinks about his daughter wasting away back home. And in the middle of this whole conversation with this woman in the crowd, now this happens, verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Now look at what these some people say to Jairus. They say, your daughter is dead. Now, of course, on one hand, for a parent, this is the worst news possible. But on the other hand, what I want you to see here is that smuggled into the singular statement is something else. I want to try to show you why this statement isn't just a descriptor of facts. This statement is a dump truck of fear and anxiety that's being unloaded into Jairus's lap, heart, and mind from this group of some people. Why do they phrase this like that? Let me try to explain. 
the most common characteristic of what's called chronic anxiety in a person, a group, or a community is something called reactivity, okay? Reactivity is a vicious cycle. It's fueled either by extreme emotionality or extreme passivity. And one way to detect chronically anxious reactivity is through the way that a person, a group, a spouse, a culture communicates. They use language like this. Overreactive people and cultures sound like this. They, it's marked by you statements. Overreactive communication is marked by you statements. Stuff like, you're just like your mother. <laughs> you're a control freak. You are irrational. You are stupid. Or you never, or you always. See, you statements just allow me to be irresponsible and transfer all of my unprocessed anxiety onto you without having me deal with my own fear first. So with that in mind, let's look at what these people say to Jairus. They say, your daughter is dead. Not the little girl is dead or you know, Tabitha or some other name is dead, but your daughter. See, it's a you statement. Why do they phrase it like this? Well, remember, they lived in this incredibly moralistic culture. Bad things only happen to who? Bad people hmm? in their system. If something bad happened to you, it's because you deserved it. Remember Job's friends, exhibit A here, huh? Your suffering is your fault, they said. How about the man born blind over in John chapter eight? What do the Pharisees ask Jesus? Whose sin, whose fault is this? This man's or his parents? See, this is someone's fault. Your suffering is your fault. Your blindness is your fault. So when your daughter dies, what does that mean about you as a father in that culture? It means they're saying, Jairus, this is your fault. You took too long with Jesus. You couldn't get him there in time. You didn't go fast enough. And by the way, what would this mean, huh, for his leadership of the synagogue? Because good religious leaders in good standing with a good God don't have daughters who die. Good religious leaders who live righteous lives don't have children who don't live up to the dominant cultural narrative, right? See, before Jesus, the point is, Jesus can ever get there. They are, these some people are filling the room, filling the air with flammable, reactive gas. And this is what is happening. Because look at what Jesus says immediately. He turns to Jairus, just ignores him. He says, don't be afraid. Just believe. Don't be afraid. Just believe. What's Jesus doing here? Here's what he's doing. Jesus is being, well, I want to encourage you to be a positive emotional presence that can help regulate the behavior of others. A positive emotional presence that can help regulate the behavior of others. See, Jesus isn't being Distant, passive, like clicking back with the remote control. Nor is he melting down here. No, Jesus is letting Jairus know, you are going to be okay because I am here with you. And this is so important to do, friends. So important to do, church, in communication, in relationships, because here's what the lack of this does. Here's what reactivity does in a group, in a home, in a family. Reactivity shuts down risk. Risk. See, when language starts devolving into you statements, now faith gets shut down, risk gets shut down. Because look, look at what the crowd says next. Why bother the teacher anymore? Faith is shut down. Risk is shut down. There's no point in believing for a better future now. We might as well give up. Look, this is so predictable. This is a predictable cycle and pattern. We grow afraid because of rapid change. 
we react, we blame shift, we quit, and we shut down. And now there's no possibility of turning the situation around. This previous February, back in February 2021 this year, during our ice storm, we remember this, right? Remember how this was? I think Costco still sold out of blankets. Can't get enough to go around in the Austin area. While, while most people here, maybe you, were just trying to stay warm, there was this baby girl, maybe you saw this in the news, baby girl born out in Marble Falls, about an hour or so northwest of Austin, this little small town. And this baby was born prematurely, about 24 weeks, and a baby born at 24 weeks will not survive outside of a NICU, a neonatal intensive care unit, which would normally mean that a baby born at 24 weeks in Marble Falls would need to be transferred to Austin to a hospital to be able to live. Only problem was, February 2021, roads were impassable and no one would make the trip. No one that is except for one of our elders here at Mosaic Church, Dr. John Lloyd, Dr. John. And John Lloyd is a neonatal physician. And we, yeah. And when John heard about the situation, John, he had this choice to make straight out of that song by The Clash. Should I stay or should I go? Yeah, so here's what John did. He went. He got his old excursion down to his hospital. He grabbed a couple of nurses, loaded up his truck with a NICU equipment. And here's what happened. We actually have a little snippet here from a news article that was run about A group John. of brave doctors braved last week's devastating ice storm to help a mother and her little baby who was born 24 weeks early. She and her family got to the hospital but needed special medical care because the baby arrived so early. So doctors from Dale's Children's Hospital brought a NICU to her. They drove about 50 miles on dangerous and icy roads from Austin to Marble Falls to give both mom and the baby the care they needed. I knew there were a healthcare team out there that was not equipped to take care of such a fragile baby that was having to try and do that. And as a parent, uh, as a provider, um, I just, I, I, I couldn't on my watch not do something. Oh, well, thanks to the two teams of healthcare workers, that baby's chances of survival are increasing every day. Yeah, how about that? There's actually a little photo of John with a couple of nurses in his frozen over truck there. Yeah. Now listen, behind the scenes, again, what was predictable, but you don't know from the story, was basically what was going on was a version of what was happening in this crowd. In the hospital, it was basically, this baby girl's not going to make it. She's dead. Why bother going anymore? Oh, but did you notice in John's interview there, all of his, all of his statements, they weren't you statements. No, John used the key. He used the key to communication in anxiety-filled environments. He used not you statements, but I statements instead. Look at this. Here's what he said. He said, I knew there was a mother out there. I knew there was a healthcare team out there. He was not equipped to take care of such a fragile baby. He was having to try and do that. And as a parent, as a provider, I just couldn't on my watch not do something. No blame shifting, no reactivity, no narcissism, just I know, I feel, I believe. And because of that, little Zalen Arias lived, she lived. How can we, yeah, how can we be? How can we emotionally mature people? Number one, quit embracing chronic reactivity. Number two, second key to emotional maturity in any environment is this, quit believing everything everyone says about you is true. Quit believing everything everyone says about you is true. Because one of the challenges that we face more than ever before, especially if you are out in front of anything, if you are leading anything, is what to do with all the stuff 
people are saying about you right now. Like what the public says, or maybe at home what your spouse says, or your children say, or your boss says, or your employees say. Public officials are being blasted, excoriated publicly on social media. Some are receiving death threats just for doing their jobs. And I want to tell you, even if you don't agree with what they're doing, that is not okay. That is never okay. Never okay to justify. And yet, if this happens to us, what are we going to do about it? Now, what I don't mean by quit believing what everyone says about you is to shut out, hear me, correction, rebuke, adjustment, feedback, and perspective from mature spiritual people, mentors in our lives. No, no, no. The Proverbs, come on, speak over and over about the kind of person who actually refuses to listen and receive correction. That kind of person, what does the Bible call him? Come on, you know, a fool. Yes. Remember Proverbs 27? my little, my favorite proverb, my little moment in the sermon for me. Thank you. Though you grind a fool, is with a pestle, like you got him in a bowl. You got her in a bowl and you're grinding her. She still, he still won't be wise. Why? Because he or she refuses to listen and the same spin cycle happens again. Why? Because they're foolish. They won't listen. Oh, but do you know who else the Bible describes as a fool? It's the person who believes everything. Everything they're told. In other words, it's foolish to believe everything everyone says, especially about you. So, so when I say quit believing everything that everyone says about you is true, again, what I'm not saying is to quit listening to wise counselors, proven pastors, trusted friends, maybe the people you live with and know the best. These are the people to whom you should actually listen and listen long and listen deeply and consider changing and growing from their feedback. Have I made my point? But what I am saying, who I am saying to ignore rather is this, the invisible army. It's the some people in the story. You know the invisible army? Yeah. If I, had a, if I had a dollar for every time someone over the last year and a half has, some, has said this version of this to me, Morgan, well, a lot of people are talking about you and it's not good. Well, of course it's not all good. Everybody's fearful, anxious, angry. They're, man, they're, they're slugging out flight attendants and waitresses. Of course they're gonna be mean to me too. Like, they expect me to fix all the world's problems. And in the middle of that, by the way, I'm also trying to get a bunch of people, that would be you, to do a bunch of stuff maybe you're not doing already. Like I'm trying to get you to love your neighbor no matter what. I'm trying to get a bunch of people to drop their political idolatry because that's what it is. Their latent racism and bigotry because that exists. I'm trying to get a bunch of people maybe to drop their selfishness, their drug abuse, alcohol abuse. Uh, I'm trying to keep them married to the same person they swore they would be married to. I'm trying to get them connected in the Christian community, read their Bibles every day and know a God who loves them. I'm trying to get them to be generous and not stingy with their money. So yeah. People aren't gonna like me. They're not gonna like me. Yeah, they're gonna walk in with all of their use statements to some people, the invisible army and dump truck all that into my inbox or my desk and they'll do the same to you, to you. A lot of people say this, a lot of people say that. Okay, so ignore them. You are not the sum total of what some mob on Twitter says about you. And by the way, by the way, the whole, the whole Twitter mob thing, that's not new either. Remember the Psalms? Come on, Psalm 3. David prays this. Many, O oh Lord, are saying, right? The Twitter verse is saying, the mob on social media is saying, you will not deliver me. But David says what? 
but you're my glory, the lifter of my head, the one before whom I will not be ashamed. What is Jesus facing here? He's facing the same thing. Look at verse 39. He went in and said to them, to the some people, why all this commotion and wailing? The child isn't dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. Not because he told a joke. But what did Jesus do next here? I love this. Thank God for the gospel writer Mark because it's almost hilarious. Very next verse is, after he put them all out. Oh man. He took the child's mother, father, and the disciples who were with him and he went into where the child was. Jesus doesn't even bother to negotiate with them. For him to be a non-anxious presence here, to, for him to bring about this miracle here, he puts these emotional hostage takers out. And by the way, just a little aside here, husbands, your wife is not this person, okay? She is not the invisible army. She is, as you probably discovered, very visible and very audible, like unmissably visible. She's the person you've promised to listen to and love, so don't, don't even include her there. Is Jesus being unloving? No. no. He is love itself. Every motive for every action is based on love. So no, it's not unloving of him to ignore the invisible army and to try to deal with every critic. So what is he being? It's something I want to encourage you again here to be, which is uh, something you've heard before. I'm bringing it back to you, not because I couldn't come up with something new, okay? If you've heard this before, it's because your pastor thinks it's purposeful. It's something called a differentiated person or differentiated leader based on some research, again, by Dr. Friedman. It's put up to like this. Differentiation is the ability a person has, a leader has, a parent has to recognize that while they are, in deep, they are deeply embedded within a community, while they are part of a system, that they are not the sum total of what everyone says about them. Seven quick characteristics of what that looks like. First, differentiation is the capacity to take a stand in an intense emotional system. Is Jesus doing this here? Yes. Differentiation. It's containing one's reactivity to the reactivity of others, which includes the ability to avoid being polarized. Differentiation is maintaining a non-anxious presence in the face of anxious others. Does Jesus do this here? Yes, he does. Differentiation is knowing where one person ends and another begins. It's called having boundaries. Differentiation is being able to cease automatically being one of the system's emotional dominoes. Like just because the political party says this or just because the news articles say this, you don't go into that place. Differentiation is taking maximum responsibility for one's own emotional being and destiny rather than blaming others or the context. In its simplest terms, therefore, differentiation is the capacity to be an integrated person while still belonging to a larger colony. Not, a, a, not, not a, a person who's autonomous, not the John Wayne, Lone Ranger, American myth. No, no, no. Nor does some protoplasm you're absorbed into the ether with. No, no, no. You're part of a community, but you're still yourself. This kind of growth, I want to encourage you, is crucial for us right now to learn how on one hand to listen to wise people and yet and yet to ignore the crowds and the invisible armies. Here's one way I try to do this. I'll give myself away a little bit. Last thought before I move on. On Sundays, right here, yeah, before I preach, like it's happening now, you may see me sometimes close my eyes and that little video that plays before I, I begin to talk. And usually I'm doing two things. I'm praying something and I'm declaring something. Here's what I pray. I pray, Lord, give me your heart for these people. 
give me your heart for these people. I need to know how you feel about them before I ever begin to speak. And second, I actually declare towards you, you don't own me. You don't own me. He said, I'm not here for you first. I'm here for him first, Jesus first. Do, you, do we wanna be, wanna be emotionally mature people? Yeah, quit believing everything everyone says about you is true. Third and finally, I'm gonna encourage you today to quit the emotion of despair. You'll be an emotionally mature person. Any environment, quit the emotion of despair. Toward the end of World War II, you may know this story, after delivering parts of the first atomic bomb to the Marianas Islands, the USS Indianapolis, famous story, was torpedoed in the middle of the Japan Sea. And if you've ever seen the movie Jaws, you remember that speech that old guy Quint gives on the boat? You know what happens next. The, the ship went down before they could even get a distress call out. And of the 800 men who were left floating in the sea, they floated there in a boiling sun, covered in oil, surrounded by hundreds of sharks. We got this picture of the rescue here until they were randomly spotted by an American pilot on patrol almost four days later. Some of the men panicked. Although they knew it was to their advantage to stay with the group, some of the men on purpose swam away from the safety of the group and gave themselves up to the sharks. Now I read an interview with one of the survivors and it, it was fascinating because one of these survivors was asked, why do you think that some of your fellow sailors gave themselves up to the sharks? Like they did the exact opposite of what you did. You responded uh, in a non-reactive way, presence, courage, stamina. And one survivor from the USS Indianapolis answered this question, that question immediately. He said this from New York, maybe you'll hear the accent in there. Those guys who swam away, they didn't have no future. Those guys who swam away they didn't have no future, as in they couldn't see a future for themselves. The same is true, by the way. Victor Frankl wrote about this from World War II survivors in the Nazi camps. He said, many of the ones who didn't make it out were one of the ones who just gave up. They despaired of the future. He said, but if you could see beyond the barbed wire, if you could see beyond the walls of the camp, if you could find a reason to keep going, and you maximized your chances of emerging victorious. But if you didn't, if you gave up hope and you gave yourself up to despair, he said, it didn't even matter. You would never make it. In other words, other words, here's what we learn. It's not food or water or shelter or being treated well that keeps us alive. What literally keeps us alive is hope, hope, it's hope. So what reason do you have? Maybe you're in a situation like Jairus today. What reason do you have to keep going in your situation? Because I know some of you are facing enormous crises, crises in your home family, your marriage, your business. What can, where can we find a reason to hope no matter what? Because we need that, don't we? We need a reason to find hope that the sharks can't take away, come on, that a boiling sun can't take away, that death can't take away, that the invisible army can't take away. Where can we find the power for that? Look at verse 41. It says, Jesus took her by the hand and said to her, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. I want to tell you, some of you need to hear that right now to you in your soul. Little girl, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up, began to walk around. She was about 12 years old. Maybe some of you are facing something. It's about the 12-year mark in your life. For 12 years, you've been hanging on. Jesus is saying, let it go. Get up from it. At this, they were completely astonished. And this is amazing, by the way. 
because this isn't like, like the princess bride here. She's not just mostly dead. Sorry, three of you, you know that. She's all dead. So why does he say this to her? Little girl, get up. Why not like, wake thee up from thy you know, death, dead girl? No. He's saying to her, like a, her parents would, honey, baby girl, it's time to get up. Time to get up. What do we learn? You know what this teaches us? It shows us here, hear me, that death and despair hold no more power over Jesus Christ than a nap. Then a nap, then a little girl taking a nap. This is showing you that the touch of Jesus can bring back dead things, dead hearts, dead emotions. There's always hope. When what seems like a hopeless situation, he just takes her by the hand, pulls her up through death with his touch. Do you feel like you've lost God's hand somehow? Your moment. Hmm? When we can't see, when we don't understand, when we can't feel the hand of God in our lives or see it in our emotional life, we, we can despair. Oh, but I want to tell you, even Jesus knows what that's like. He's walked through that on the cross. He lost his, excuse me, father's hand. Listen, there's no more frightening moment for a child than to lose their parent's hand in a crowd, in the dark, on the cross. When Jesus cried out, God, daddy, where are you? There's no answer. He lost his grip and he got what we deserved hopelessness, abandonment. Why? So that we can get what he, the perfect, righteous, matchless son of God deserved. The permanent affection and love of almighty God. So that you could know there's nothing that could ever make God lose his grip of your hand in life. Jesus came, in other words, to prove that he loves you with an indestructible love and therefore we can always have hope. We can always lean into hope, always lean into that. And today, today, I believe right now in just a moment that maybe even the touch of Jesus can bring back some dead things to life, maybe in your heart or moment or feelings. I'm gonna take a moment, I'm gonna pray for us. Our band's gonna come back on the stage and I'm gonna ask Carrie to come up in just a moment and share and minister to us. Lord, I thank you. As it's been called for moments for believing, no matter the messenger, no matter what we're, thinking or feeling or been through, even coming in today. I thank you for this. Lord, I pray in these, these moments, we just, we put out, we put out whatever lie would come in, every mockery of you or your, the one you send to us, Jesus, put that out and allow Jesus to fill our space, Jesus to fill our hearts, Jesus to fill our emotions. And we'd be touched and transformed. I pray these things. Jesus' name. Amen. I just want to take a minute and step into the story that Morgan told from Mark 5. As I sat with it this week, uh, thinking about how interesting and unusual it is, if you're familiar with the Bible, the way these two people, the woman who's bleeding and Jairus, their stories kind of um, are woven between one another. Like it starts, that passage kind of starts with Jairus approaching Jesus and saying, my daughter's sick. And then the woman breaks through the crowd, touches Jesus, is healed. And then they go to Jairus's house. It's just unusual. And uh, as I sort of prayed about that and was asking the Lord, God, why, why? Why are these two people's stories interwoven? I noticed that in a lot of ways, they're very similar in their circumstances. There's something about their physical condition that has brought out, like Morgan talked about, a, a moral failure according to their culture's ideas. So 
you've got the woman who's bleeding. She's sick. She's bleeding. Bleeding women were considered unclean and were not allowed to be a part of the community. They weren't allowed in the temple. They weren't allowed to worship with everyone. They weren't allowed to be touched. You have this woman bleeding. She's, she's sick, therefore she's bad. And then you have Jairus, right? He finds out his daughter's dead, okay? You lose a child, what does that mean? You're bad. They're both receiving a moral failure, culturally speaking, because people love this or that statements, right? We, we just gravitate toward them, right? It's, I'm either successful or I'm a failure. I'm either loved or I'm, or I'm rejected. I'm either good or I'm bad. This or that, we gravitate toward this or that. But the interesting thing, as I sat with this, I realized Jesus doesn't stay. God does not dwell in this or that. He doesn't see you as a this or a that. He sees you as his own. When Jesus heals the woman, he doesn't turn to her and say, your faith has made you clean. He doesn't say, your faith has made you well. You know what he says? Your faith has made you whole. God has something better than clean for you. He has something better than healed for you. God has wholeness for you. When Jesus goes and finds the Jairus' daughter dead in her bed, he says, she's not dead. People aren't either dead or alive, Jesus is saying. It's not this or that. They're awake. They can be awoken. Death is not the end. Jesus knew that. Why did he know that? He knew what he was gonna do. Death was no match for him. In your own life, I don't know what this or that label you've been given by parents, by teachers, by bosses, by friends, by spouses. I don't know what label you've accepted about yourself that you think, I don't wanna be that anymore. But I'm telling you today, you never were that to start with. You are not a this or a that. And I wanna pray for us. I don't want our city to be this or that. I want our city to belong to God. I want it to be full of whole people, loving one another, sacrificing for one another, believing the truth about what God says. We we don't have to be afraid. I want Austin to be a place where people come out of fear and into what God has called them to be, which is whole, faithful, loving, community-based people. So in your own life right now, I'm gonna say to you what Jesus said to that little girl, and I'm gonna ask you to do something, whether it's for your own heart, your own labels, your own thing you wanna leave behind today, you wanna rip that off, we're we're gonna pray for that. Or if you think it's for someone else, you have a child, maybe you're Jairus, and you've got a kid in your classroom, you've got a neighbor, you've got a friend that you think, that person needs to be woken up. They need to be awake to what God has for them. I wanna pray for that. And more than anything, I wanna pray for our city, that we would live awake to one another, that we wouldn't this or that each other, but we would embrace one another. So if you're in for that, if you've got faith for that, we're putting the voices out of the room that say that's not possible. We're putting the lies out of the room that would say that's not possible. And we're gonna come together and we're not going to fear. We're only going to believe that Jesus came to do what he said he was gonna come and do. He's gonna set us free and make us whole. So if that's you, Talitha Coombs, stand up. We're gonna pray. 
We're gonna pray and ask God to do a miracle in our lives and in our friends and in our family and in our city. God, we come before you, Lord. We refuse the labels that have been offered to us. Good, bad, successful, failure, accepted, rejected. Lord, we push them aside and we say no. We say no to the labels. God, I thank you for being a God who doesn't label us, but for being a God who opens his arms wide and loves us. Lord, I ask you in each person's life here, God, as we lift our hands up, God, we think of the things we need wholeness, of the healing we need, of the, of the cleanness that people have said we don't possess. God, and we trust you to make us whole. Jesus, we reach out like that woman did. We're gonna bother the teacher today. We're gonna bother the teacher with our needs. We need you, Jesus, to heal us, to set us free, to make us whole. Jesus, we reach out for you now and ask you to let your power flow in our life. God, we pray for this city. Lord, I pray that there would be an awakening in Austin, an awakening to your great love for this place. God, that, that you would flow through these streets, that we would know you, Father, that we would know you, Son, that we would know you, Spirit, as the giver of life, the creator of all. Lord, let our knees bow not to fear, but to you. God, thank you that in each person's life here, Lord, you have a call and a destiny for them. Lord, that woman suffered for 12 years and then you used her faith to show Jairus how to, how to walk in faith. God, whatever we've endured, Lord, I pray it would be a sign and a wonder to the people around us, Lord, of your greatness and your power. Thank you for being our teacher. Thank you for being our Lord. Thank you for being our God. We love you so much. Let our lives be a sign of your greatness, in Jesus' name. Maybe you feel like, man, it's just been a while since I've reached up and I've taken his hand. Today, we want this to be an opportunity for you to say yes to Jesus, actually to reach up, have him pull you up. 
close to his heart. So our prayer team is gonna be up here. We'd love for you to respond to that and take a moment here and they can talk with you about what that means and where you go next and all that. And of course, they're here to pray for you no matter what, even if you responded a moment ago to something that, that Carrie shared. So thank you for being with us here today, Mosaic, everybody online. We love you. You are so loved. Let me just leave you now after all of this. Yes, with one more blessing. Would you even maybe even lift your hands, extend your hands to receive this. Let me just say these words over you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and may he give you peace. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Thank you all for being here today. We love you. You are dismissed. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.